Hey, I'm Kelly McEvers. And I'm Tom Dreisbach. And this is Embedded. In 1997, Scott Pruitt took a trip with his church. To a Romanian city, Timisoara. My first trip abroad. And as I traveled to Timisoara, I got a chance to do something uh, and tour in a church there. It's a former communist country, and so he's asking a bunch of questions. I looked up on the wall of the church, and there were pictures of pastors that were serving that church uh, from the 1950s and the 1960s, and I was very confused. And so he's wondering, basically, like, how can you be having church services under communism, which was explicitly anti-religion? And I asked the pastor with whom I was walking through the church, did you all meet for church, you know, on Sundays during that time frame? Did you actually have pastors who led this church at that time? And his answer was very telling. He said, yes, we, we met every week. But as we met every week, there was always someone in attendance from the government who listened to everything that we said. And if we took outside the four walls of the church, what we learned within the four walls of the church, we were arrested and we were prosecuted. And that's basically true. Protestant churches were allowed to operate in Romania, but they were closely monitored by the communist regime. People who were caught distributing religious pamphlets could be sent to jail or mental institutions. There are even cases of the secret police torturing preachers. And hearing about that really stuck with Scott Pruitt. So much that he tells this story a lot. And when he tells it, tells it almost the exact same way every time. Many years ago, uh, I was in Romania visiting with churches. Yeah, I was in Romania in 1997. Uh, we were there on a missions trip, and I was, we were partnering with a church in Timisoara. And I was going through the church. Same details. He looks up and he sees the pictures. He asks the person he's with. Did you actually meet and worship? They say, yes, we could worship. Same turn. But. But as we met. But as we met and we met, there was always someone in the congregation from the government. And if we exported outside the four walls of the church and shared what we learned within the four walls of the church, then we had difficulty. Prosecution. They were prosecuted and persecuted. Persecuted and prosecuted. And the moral of the story for Scott Pruitt is this. And I will tell you, there are people in America today that say to you and I that we can have freedom of worship and not freedom of religion. That we can gather on Sunday mornings and worship within the four walls of the church But if we export the truth, then that's when difficulty arises. Scott Pruitt has been a state senator, a state attorney general, and now he's the head of the EPA, the Environmental Protection Agency. And throughout it all, he's been telling this story about the church in Romania. It's a story about an overreaching government and a Christian church that feels like it's under attack. And telling this story is one way Pruitt says that his religious faith is really at the center of his politics. And this is not the Scott Pruitt that most of us know, right? Most of us know him as the guy who talks about the law and federalism and the Constitution, someone who sued the Obama administration a bunch of times when he was attorney general of Oklahoma, the guy who President Trump picked to head the EPA who killed the clean power plan, who says climate science should be up for debate, who announced that the U.S. would pull out of the Paris Climate Agreement. This is an historic 
restoration of American economic independence, one that will benefit the working class, the working poor, and working people of all stripes. And we know him as the guy who's been in the news a lot lately. The White House divided over the fate of EPA chief Scott Pruitt. Reports about possible ethics violations. New questions about why two of Pruitt's top aides got hefty raises. Pruitt spent six months renting a room in a Capitol Hill condo that was co-owned by the wife of a top energy lobbyist. There have been suggestions by many that he will be fired or resign, like so many other people in the Trump administration. So far, that hasn't happened. So what we're going to do today is what we've done with other members of the Trump administration. Go back and look at the record of Scott Pruitt. There's the story of how Scott Pruitt, the young lawyer, comes back from Romania and applies these religious beliefs to public policy. And the story of a massive pollution case and how Pruitt handled that case. If Pruitt ends up staying at the EPA, that case could tell us a lot about how he'll do things there. And if he ends up in another office, like U.S. Attorney General or U.S. Senator from Oklahoma or the governor of Oklahoma, jobs he reportedly has his eye on, it will give us a sense of how he would do those jobs, too. Support for this NPR podcast and the following message come from ZipRecruiter. Are you hiring? Every business needs great people and a better way to find them. Something better than posting your job online and waiting for the right people to see it. ZipRecruiter can help. Their technology identifies people with the right experience and invites them to apply to your job. Try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com embedded. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Hi, I'm Guy Raz. And I'm Mindy Thomas. And together, we bring you Wow in the World. NPR's podcast for families. Every week, we explore wild and new scientific discoveries. We also ride a bird. We also ride a bird. Find Wow in the World on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. All right, so Tom is telling this story along with Joe Wirtz. He's a reporter with State Impact Oklahoma. He's also from Oklahoma. He's been reporting there for more than a decade. Here we go. So Scott Pruitt is originally from Kentucky, and he went to college at the University of Kentucky on a baseball scholarship. He played second base, and he had kind of an infamous nickname. The Possum. Why? (laughs) Uh, Well, he just kind of looked like a possum, I think is what his uh, fellow players kind of said. He's not a real tall guy. Yeah, he's five foot nine. And, you know, a bunch of college friends on your baseball team. Um, they're going to give you a little guff. He actually made a really concerted run to become a professional baseball player, and it didn't work out. And he ended up transferring out of the University of Kentucky to a college called Georgetown College, not the one in D.C. This is a Kentucky school that is a Baptist college. And he meets his wife in college, and he ends up going to law school at the University of Tulsa Law School. And that's how he ends up in Oklahoma. And after he graduates law school, he gets his first client, a woman named Judith Lynn Whittington. Some people call me Judy. Some people call me Lynn. What do you prefer? Either one. I don't care. (laughs) Let's just go with Lynn because that's how she introduced herself to me. 
So when Lynn was in her 30s, she had just gotten divorced, and this pastor kept bugging her about going to church. One Saturday night, she was out dancing with a friend. She didn't drink, but her friend did, and Lynn liked to smoke a lot. Anyway, they stayed out late, but the next morning, Lynn convinces her friend they should go try out this church. And, you know, and everybody, of course, giving you the look, you know. And I I don't blame them, because we probably smelled like a beer. And, and cigarettes, you know. And Lynn liked the church. She became a Baptist. And like a lot of people who convert, she really threw herself into it. So I was a fairly new Christian. It was very important to me to be able to do the things that I felt like God was leading me to do. So she starts a Bible study at her house, and she also starts volunteering with what's called a crisis pregnancy center. Uh, These are groups that oppose abortion, and they counsel women basically not to get an abortion. You know, of course, you know, the church doesn't agree with abortion. And so they would help them if they decide to keep their baby. They would help them. In general, these organizations can be controversial, especially with abortion rights activists. But regardless, they're a pretty big part of the anti-abortion rights movement, and it's a pretty big part of Lynn Whittington's life, too. Well, Lynn got to be friends with a woman through the Crisis Pregnancy Center, and she helped this friend move. The thing is, that woman was also a client at the Department of Human Services. That's the agency where Lynn was working as a social worker. So Lynn's supervisor at this agency, DHS, gets upset. Her bosses thought, this is inappropriate. The lines are getting really blurry between what is your religious mission and what is the state agency's mission, which is providing people benefits and access to Medicaid and that kind of thing. And so her boss calls her and says this. She said, you're not allowed to have any contact after hours with DHS clients or potential clients. And I, I thought, what? And I told her, I said, would you repeat that? Her supervisor says not only is she blurring the lines too much with the crisis pregnancy center, and she can't work there, she also is supposed to deliver this disclaimer at the beginning of all of her Bible studies where she's supposed to say that she is there just as a private citizen and this has nothing to do with her work as a social worker. But to Lynn, these rules scare her and make her think if she does or says the wrong thing, she could lose her job. The supervisor reprimands Lynn and she ends up being so scared that she decides just to end the whole prayer group. I had to dissolve it and it meant that I couldn't invite people to church. So she's at this point where she can't have her prayer group. She can't be part of her crisis pregnancy center, basically. And she decides to get a lawyer. So Lynn calls up this group, a group called the Rutherford Institute, which is basically a conservative version of the ACLU. They recommended me to call this number, and I called, and they scheduled me an appointment with Scott Pruitt. Went in, talked with him. He was a young lawyer, but he was a go-getter. I mean, he started working on it that day. He was excited about it. And you can kind of tell why he'd be excited about this. On the one hand, he's straight out of law school, and this is like a big case involving big constitutional rights. This is the kind of thing you study in like a constitutional law class. And on the other hand, he's a Baptist, and 
it's an important case to him because of his religion. He saw it as this is what she truly believes and she has the right to do it. It was about the religious beliefs. It wasn't about getting money and damages. No, He, he wasn't into that. And here's how the case ended. During this time, the Clinton administration happened to sign a religious freedom law. And so Oklahoma changed its employee handbook. After that, the state decided to settle with Lynn. She started up her Bible study again and went back to working in that center that counseled women not to have abortions. Lynn hasn't talked about this case to reporters for more than 20 years. We actually heard about it from one of Pruitt's campaign ads. He was so kind, and he was so on fire for God's work. And I stood beside her, and we fought for her religious liberty at that time to say that the the state agency could not keep her from having a Bible study in her home. And we achieved that. She got her job back, got restored. She actually never lost her job. And was able to continue the Bible study that she had started. And Lynn says she still really respects Pruitt for helping her out. He was there a young attorney when I needed an attorney so badly. Okay, so Scott Pruitt at this point is working as a lawyer. He's got a wife and a young daughter. And he lives in a suburb of Tulsa, Oklahoma. And that's where he joins this church. It's called the First Baptist Church. It's in Broken Arrow, Oklahoma. So I met up with Joe We drove out to Broken Arrow. Yeah, and Broken Arrow is a suburb of Tulsa. Uh, It's rapidly growing. It's it's a nice place to live. It's a short 15, 20-minute commute to Tulsa. And the First Baptist Church has got a perch right kind of on Mm -hmm. this big hill in Broken Arrow. You can see the whole skyline. And so that's where we meet this character, Nick Garland. He's the senior pastor of First Baptist Church in Broken Arrow. Say your last name? Dreisbach. I've, I've tried several times to practice. I'm from Alabama, so be real careful. <laughs> it's good to meet you, Tom. This is Joe Wirtz. Joe, yes. I can say words. Yes, easy. <laughs> As you can hear, he's got this amazing laugh. Amazing laugh. He is like a clearly a beloved figure at this church. Hey, Bubba. Hello, sir. How are you doing? Bubba's in charge of our men's ministry. He's a former football player at OU, was a center and tough as a boot. He says they have about 2,500 people who come on Sundays for the services. There's probably about 4,000 to 4,500 people who are part of the congregation more generally. So that's a megachurch. That qualifies as a megachurch. Anyway, this is our worship center. Um, Seats about... 1400 its present configuration. Right outside the this big worship center is this brick wall. This is something we did when we first moved out here. Our, because, because and each brick is inscribed with a name. These are people who donated to the church when it moved from its old location to here. And they're also people who are important in the church community. It starts with the A's and goes back and forth, back and forth, the Z's over here. Are the Pruitts on here? Yeah, probably. I hadn't thought about it. Let's see here. P-H. I see P-O. Pruitt. There's Rachel, Marlene, Scott. Right there, sure is. That's, that's their husband, wife, and two children right there. Sure is. So it kind of gives you a sense of Scott Pruitt's place within this church. As soon as he and his wife, Marlene, got to Oklahoma, is basically when they joined this church. And according to Nick Garland, 
they threw themselves into it. They're just the kind of young couple as a pastor. You're very delighted when people that are shakers and movers and have strong aspirations to make a difference in their life, they come join you. Scott Pruitt ended up doing Sunday school teaching, and he became a deacon at the church. And over the years, Scott Pruitt and Nick Garland spend a lot of time together. They pray together. At any given moment, Garland knows what scripture Pruitt is studying. Garland says they're not close friends. Their relationship is more that of a pastor with a very active and faithful family. But even now, Garland says Pruitt will call or text him when he's got a big meeting and will ask Garland to pray for him. Garland says he recently went to a private reception at the EPA with Pruitt. Both men are Southern Baptists, and the Southern Baptist Convention opposes abortion and gay marriage. God's wrath is coming on those that are disobedient. It doesn't matter if 10,000 newscasters say this is legal and it's right. If God said it's wrong, it's still wrong. And they oppose transgender rights. Listen, in this generation where people are trying to decide what they believe about sex, it's because we've forgotten the one who made them male and female. In a generation where we're not sure if God created because we've propagandized evolution. We've forgotten in the beginning God. And they believe environmentalists are wrong to worship the earth. Instead, one should worship God. They exchange the truth of God for a lie. Worship and serve the created somethings instead of the creator. Do you hear about God's glorious creation or the green movement or global warming or Mother Earth? These are some of Nick Garland's recent sermons. And Pruitt has said similar things about the environment. Some Christians believe it's their duty to protect the earth as God's creation. Pruitt and Garland believe that, yes, God blessed humans with these natural resources, but that we should use those resources. The biblical worldview with respect to these these issues is that we have a responsibility to to manage and cultivate, harvest, Uh, the natural resources that we've been blessed with to to truly bless our fellow mankind. So at this point, Scott Pruitt is very active in this church that holds strong religious and political views. And then in 1997, he takes that trip to Romania, that defining moment for him about how the state should stay out of the church's business. And later that same year, Pruitt starts to think about running for office and a seat in the Oklahoma State Senate. But there's a problem. His district, where he is, is Republican, but there's this 16-year incumbent there. And so he's got a really tough race ahead of him. How do you defeat a 16-year incumbent? You're a guy fresh out of law school. How are you going to do this? In fact, I remember back in December of 97 when I shared with some of my very good friends what I was planning on doing. They told me, don't do that. Move. Move somewhere else. Run against a Democrat. Pruitt later tells this story in a speech. You have those doubt pushers, but you have certain people who are people of faith, who feed your faith, who encourage you. And I want to say to my wife that uh, she said to me, let's do it. And I want to say thank you to my wife because in that situation, she said yes. So Scott Pruitt decides to run against this other Republican, an incumbent who'd been in the Senate a long time. And that guy's name is Jed Wright. 
and I went to go talk to him. Scott had the gall to come to my office when I was practicing law and, and tell me that it wasn't personal. Every election's personal. He says he doesn't hold hard feelings about this, but he was clearly upset at the time. I guess in a way it was kind of nice they came to see me and tell me it wasn't personal, but it's very personal. Here's the thing you need to know about Jed Wright. He had served in the state Senate for 16 years. He was in the Air National Guard in the military. Uh, he was also a lawyer. He's a conservative Republican. His actual main issue was criminal justice reform, reducing the prison population in the state of Oklahoma. And as he puts it, he had basically dedicated his whole life to public service. And he remembers... So he wasn't like this one of these incumbents who's just sort of like comfy in the job and like not really getting things done. Well, not according to him anyway. Jed Wright actually gets the endorsement of the local paper, the Tulsa World. They say he's a leader in the state Senate and they call him the obvious choice. But Jed Wright says the campaign was tough. Jed Wright felt like there were just some things back then that Scott Pruitt did not do right. This is admittedly small, according to Jed Wright, but he remembers there's this parade in Broken Arrow. They call it the Rooster Days Parade. And the politicians show up in the parade with their signs, and they're trying to get out the vote. And Jed Wright says back then, there was this rule, if you're campaigning, you're only allowed to have one car in the parade. And so we complied and actually walked the route, which wasn't all that far. And here comes Scott with a truck full of supporters and signs and about three or four vehicles, which kind of shows that he can do what he wants to do. We should say Pruitt's campaign manager at the time does not remember this happening. And Jed Wright at the time just felt like breaking this little rule, what's the point? Why would you do that? And the other thing that Jed Wright started to notice during that campaign in 1998 was that he was losing supporters, and for a very specific reason. I was going door to door, and I knocked on this uh, elderly lady, very sweet lady, I might add, and I told her you know, I was running for re-election and all the good things had gone on. She says, well, I'm, I'm going to vote for Mr. Pruitt. And I said, well, you don't have to tell me. You're not required, but if you don't mind, would you just tell me why you're voting for Mr. Pruitt? He goes to my church. And I just, uh, I felt it was inappropriate. My wife at the time felt like I should go to some of the churches and campaign. And I just felt that campaigning in a church of worship is not the right thing to do. And I never did. Did Scott Pruitt campaign at his church? So the reason Jed Wright says this is that one day during the campaign, he gets this phone call. And so I got a call, First Baptist Church, on a caller ID, and I thought, my goodness. And, well, it was a phone bank to solicit votes for, for Scott. And Jed Wright says the Pruitt campaign must have just mistakenly had his name on a list. So we checked this out with Pruitt's campaign manager at the time, a guy named Bob Wagner. He declined to be interviewed, but he did write me an email where he said that this was absolutely not true. Uh, Bob Wagner is also a deacon at First Baptist Church. We also asked Pastor Nick Garland about this. He says Scott Pruitt never campaigned directly in the church, but he also says he didn't have to. 
when Scott ran, the majority of our people knew Scott, loved Scott, and wanted to see Scott elected. So he didn't have to campaign here. He didn't put up bumper stickers. We didn't have signs. But we did many groups formed to pray for him. Many stood with him to, to say, we, we want you to know we're with you, and if we can help you, we, we will. But there was never a public endorsement. There's not a using the pulpit as an opportunity to, to speak to political issues. So in the end, Scott Pruitt wins the primary by about 500 votes. Jed Wright loses, but he says he takes a lesson from that campaign about who Scott Pruitt is. But Scott, uh, in those days, I thought pushed the envelope. And uh, I really hesitate to say it, but I think his ego is probably a little bit too large. And... Getting elected, I can tell you, is a very heady experience. I, I made some mistakes early on in, in my Senate career. But you get down to earth and start doing the business of the folks and, and, and try to do what's right. I don't know. I think he's just a very ambitious young man. And Jed Wright says recent reports about Pruitt flying first class, using taxpayer money, or renting a condo in D.C. that belongs to the wife of a lobbyist— that all reminds him of what happened back then. We tried to ask Scott Pruitt about this and about the rest of this story, but he did not respond to multiple requests. Will there be further debate? So Scott Pruitt joins the state Senate. Senator Pruitt, you are recognized for debate. One of the first issues he does is he passes a Religious Freedom Act. He works on legislation to restrict abortion rights and what's known as an informed consent law, telling doctors what they had to tell patients before getting an abortion. Because they need to know that there's a link with breast cancer. They need to know that there's a risk with infertility. They need to know that there are emotional risks attendant with abortion procedures. We should say that leading medical groups and experts say all of those claims are either wrong or very misleading. Um, but for Scott Pruitt, abortion was a major issue. He actually, according to documents we found, he was uh, on the board of a crisis pregnancy center in Tulsa. Most years he was in the state Senate. He introduced some sort of abortion restriction law. I'm voting to say that an unborn child from the moment of conception should be considered a legal person under the 14th Amendment. And basically, that would criminalize all abortion. He also supported a law that he called the Teacher Protection Act. And as part of that bill, textbooks would be required to include a disclaimer saying that evolution is just a theory. And there aren't sufficient scientific facts to establish the theory of evolution. Those weren't the only laws he pursued. He also worked on tax cut legislation and changes to the workers' comp system. Uh, But religion was a big part of his politics, and he actually went on this radio show uh, on the station KFAQ in Tulsa where he had this sort of radio program where he would talk about his views on the Constitution and give kind of a lecture. And to the Republic... And it always starts the same way. One nation under God! Indivisible. And on that show, he's really clear about what he sees as the problem. Religion, specifically Christianity, is under attack. The objective, I believe, Michael and Gwen, that we see in America today is to create a religious sterility. Uh, it is it is to eradicate vestiges of religion in the public square, period. And Scott Pruitt says he's going to stop that. Remember, this is the guy who now heads the EPA. 
Back then, his politics were a lot about carving out space for religion in the public square. Scott Pruitt eventually runs for Congress, comes in third, runs for lieutenant governor, loses. In 2006, he leaves politics and helps manage a minor league baseball team that he co-owned with a friend and political supporter. But a few years later, Barack Obama is president, and Scott Pruitt decides to run for state office again. I'm Scott Pruitt. I'm running for attorney general. It's 2010, a big Republican year, the Tea Party year. I authored and passed the Religious Freedom Act, and I'm the only candidate in this race with a record of defending our constitutional liberties in courts. I will fight the Obama administration. I will put criminals behind bars, and I will hold the federal government accountable for its failure to secure our borders. I'm Scott Pruitt. I ask for your vote. So you hear religious freedom. You also hear immigration, crime, federal government overreach. What you don't hear is energy, the environment, or the EPA. Scott Pruitt's record on the environment after the break. Support for NPR and the following message come from Newsy, the TV news channel with honest, in-depth context on the stories that matter. Newsy is for people who aren't satisfied with getting only the loudest part of the story. Newsy delivers more, more context, more solutions, and greater understanding of the people and events that shape our world. Learn more at newsy.com watch. What's unique about the human experience, and what do we all have in common? I'm Guy Raz. Every week on TED Radio Hour, we go on a journey through the big ideas, emotions, and discoveries that fill all of us with wonder. Find it on NPR One or wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, we are back. We've been talking about Scott Pruitt's time as a lawyer in his church and as a state senator. And now we're going to talk about how Scott Pruitt dealt with the environment. But before we do that, let me just say that we have been trying to reach Scott Pruitt and the EPA for almost two months, and they haven't responded to any of our requests, including a four-page list of questions for this story. So now we're going to start a little before the time Pruitt decided to run for attorney general of Oklahoma. And to tell this part of the story, Tom and Joe went to eastern Oklahoma. Joe picked me up in Tulsa, and we drove basically due east Cherokee County. This part of the state, eastern Oklahoma, southeastern Oklahoma, is really different than the rest of Oklahoma. And that's really important to know. So when people think of Oklahoma, they often think of the Dust Bowl, kind of 1930s era. A farmer in a, in a, in a field and tumbleweed and dirty tractor. And this part of the state is not like that at all. It's forested, rivers, streams, you know, creeks. Fly fishing. Like, you see a lot of boats and driveways, yep. kayaks and stuff. Oh, yeah, here's this place, Diamond Head Rafts, Canoes, Kayaks. Well, you can you can canoe or you can kayak or you can just float. You just get, like, a raft and you just float. Maybe a cooler of beer. Maybe a cooler of beer. And, uh, yeah, you just float and drink and yell at other people who are floating and drinking. You do a lot of that growing up? <laughs> yeah, a ton of it. Everybody here did. Not even growing up, I would do that. This weekend. Yeah, I'd love to do that this weekend. We should just get out there and float. Might be a little cold, but... This part of the state, a lot of their culture hinges upon the environment, the water, the creeks, and the streams. It's, it's a poor part of the state, not a lot of jobs. 
In a lot of ways, the environment is everything for, for these people. People down here talk about water like it's oil, uh, you know, like it's a resource. And it's something that if you protect and preserve it, it'll, it'll, it'll pay you back. So the reason we're going out to this part of the state is to see the Illinois River. It's what makes it so green out here. Several decades back, the river started getting polluted. And that pollution comes from two main sources. One is from the wastewater treatment plants up the river in Arkansas. There are a lot of little towns in Arkansas that have these water treatment plants, and a handful of them treat water from Arkansas, but the treated water is discharged into streams and water sources that carry it right into Oklahoma. And even treated water can carry stuff that pollutes a river. Arrived. And to talk about the other source of pollution, we go to see Denise Deason Toyne. Denise? Yes. Joe Wirtz. Hi, Joe. How are you? And she's with a group called Save the Illinois River. Where are we going to go? Are we going to hang around down here? I think we're going to hang around here. There's a place around here where we can walk down to the river. It's not too far. Okay. Oh, cool. We walk out to the banks of the river, and we can see that the water is pretty green and murky. But Denise says it was not always like this out here. I know enough people that have told stories about, you know, they could stand in the water up to their stomach and look and see, they could see their feet clearly. And just imagine how beautiful that would be. So Denise's job is to try to get the river back to where it once was, or at least stop it from getting worse. And here's the other big source of pollution for the river. If you drive up, up the river and you go cross over into Arkansas and go into some of the back roads, uh, the amount of chicken houses in some locations is just overwhelming. It's like, wow, and each one of those holds you know, several hundred, if not thousands of birds. So you imagine you've got someone with 2,000 chickens and the amount of chicken litter that they've got. And when you say chicken litter, for a person who doesn't keep up with this kind of thing, that means... Chicken poop. Chicken poop, yep. These chicken farms Denise is talking about are all part of what's known as the chicken belt. It goes from Oklahoma into Arkansas, Mississippi, Alabama, Georgia, and up through North Carolina. That's where most chicken in the United States is produced. And those farms also produce a lot of the stuff, chicken litter. It's feathers, feed, and all the other junk from the bottom of a chicken house. But the real problem for the river is the poop. How this works is chicken poop is generated on these poultry farms, and they have to do something with all this. And one thing they do with it is they put it out on farmland. They just spread it out there on their fields, and I'm told that it could grow grass on a rock. I mean, it is that good as far as a fertilizer. The problem is, is you apply it, and you apply it, and you apply it, and the concentration of the nutrients that it creates, the phosphorus primarily, accumulates. And at some point, it becomes more than the vegetation or crops can use. And the rains wash this extra phosphorus away. It gets into the water and just increases the phosphorus level and kills off the fish. And you get the horse snot algae uh, in the water. That's gross. It's a long, stringy algae. I mean, it's, you know. Have you ever actually seen the quote-unquote horse snot algae, Joe, what she's talking about? Yeah, it's just like slime. And, you know, these algae blooms, they start getting bad, and then they get really bad really fast. And 
In some cases, the state has advised people not to swim in the lakes and streams. All right, that's what environmentalists say spreading chicken waste on fields does to the river. Remember, there's also what water from Arkansas wastewater treatment plants does to the river. Yeah, so Oklahoma has had a long history of fighting with Arkansas, dealing with this Arkansas waste problem. And the first issue was the wastewater treatment issue and trying to get Arkansas to comply with Oklahoma's water quality standards. To number 90-1262, Arkansas versus Oklahoma. And that was a case that went all the way to the Supreme Court. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the court. This is a lawyer for the state of Oklahoma. State, Oklahoma asks you to recognize the special protection that federal law provides for very special living creatures called outstanding national... And it held that an upstream state does have to comply with the downstream state's water quality standards. So eventually, 2003, Oklahoma and Arkansas agree that in 10 years, Arkansas water treatment plants will only release a certain amount of phosphorus into the water. Human waste also contains phosphorus, by the way. So anyway, that problem for now is resolved. But there's still that problem of the chicken waste, which is being put on the fields, and the phosphorus that that produces. So the state tries to negotiate with the big chicken companies. Think of Tyson Foods and Cargill and Simmons Foods. Oklahoma tried to work this out with the companies and tried to work it out with Arkansas. That didn't work. And eventually, the state of Oklahoma sued the companies. The state of Oklahoma says its waterways are being polluted by more than one billion chickens raised in Arkansas. Just And what Oklahoma wanted was for these chicken companies to stop putting waste in places where it could get into the river. They also wanted money and damages for the waste they said had already gotten into the waterways, money they could use to help restore the river. The chicken companies, on the other hand, said they were being unfairly targeted. They said they bring a lot of business to the area and that they were already doing their best to deal with the chicken waste problem. We do everything we can to see that our farm is run right, including managing our litter the way the state tells us to. But the Oklahoma Attorney General doesn't think that's good enough. The attorney general in Oklahoma at the time is a guy named Drew Edmondson, and he's a Democrat. He forms a special environmental protection unit at the AG's office that gives it like four full-time attorneys and its own special investigator. And it's got this mandate to go after polluters. And the thing to know about this case to some extent, and the thing to know about the attorney general, Drew Edmondson, he had previously worked on the big tobacco litigation. And so there is a comparison made between that litigation, which he was involved in, and this litigation against the poultry companies. And Oklahoma brings in some outside lawyers to work on the case, including a guy named David Page. Joe and I talked to him. Yeah, David Page is an attorney that's worked for industry. Uh, He's also worked on on environmental cases. He's got an entire shelf of just, you know, what look like science texts that you might find in like an organic chemistry class. And Page remembers when Attorney General Drew Edmondson asked him to work on the case. The first time they called, I said, no way. Why is that? I mean, I was in private practice of law. Um, A case like this would basically require you to stop working on anything but this. Because it's so complicated it's or? so big and so complicated. And, and so I, I said there's no way I could afford to take a case on because these kinds of cases are typically not paid for by the public. Drew Evanson wanted to do this 
where we would basically work on what's called a contingency basis, which means if we win or settle and he can work something out, we get paid. And if not? You don't get paid. Eventually, David Page decides, okay, I'm willing to do this. What, what, what convinced you to, to, to take it on? Uh, look in the mirror. Um, I uh, had done very well uh, representing uh, big businesses and small businesses. They pay me by the hour, pay me really good. I had made a very nice life for myself, but uh, I can see that the people, the environment needed an advocate too. And there are the others. I wasn't the only one, but I just felt like somebody needed to step up. And so I said, well, I guess I uh, need to try. David Page really throws himself into this case. This case was filed in 2005. It was big news at the time. And basically, David Page works on it for half a decade. We spent five years of our life preparing this case, doing the science. I mean, that's pretty much all I did for five years. This is such a complicated case. They're working on the science. They're working on the intersection between the law and the science. They're trying to figure out, okay, how do we literally prove this chicken poop from that place is what is in the river? They even contact a scientist to try and do DNA fingerprinting, basically, on the chicken poop. Anyway, they finally end up in federal court in Tulsa. He and others who worked on that case just say it was brutal. You know, 60 witnesses for, for, for this case. It took 52 days total trial time. And they had their legal firepower on the state side. But on the other side, you have these companies that are able to afford some of the best attorneys. They had a whole group of lawyers across the street in the Mayo Hotel, a whole floor of lawyers and paralegals prepping each day for their case. And they we fought for every inch. It was like a... Well, a famous Civil War battle where every square foot of property was fought with blood, tears, and sweat. And David Page says it was just start and stop, start and stop, interjections, objections, for weeks and weeks and weeks. February 2010, trial's over. It's in the judge's hands. A few months later, Scott Pruitt decides he's going to run for the attorney general's seat. My campaign for attorney general is about first principles. And it's about first principles because I believe that we have forgotten to live according to and under the Constitution. Government is not our master, it's our servant. And so during Pruitt's campaign, he's getting donations from the poultry industry, uh, at least $40,000 worth. So this is about 4% of the total contributions to Pruitt's campaign. And there's a sense that these are directly connected to the lawsuit because it includes donations from the head of Tyson. His personal donation. His personal donation, yeah. donations from other top executives at Tyson. And then donations from the lawyers who were on the side of the poultry companies in this case. His opponent at the time takes aim at him for this. And Pruitt says, it's ridiculous. A spokesperson for Tyson Foods at the time said their employees are free to support whoever they like. So in November of 2010, Pruitt is 
riding this big Tea Party wave in Oklahoma, and he wins the AGC. We're going to use the courts to push back against Washington, D.C., and I look forward to being your advocate in that regard to make sure we stand for freedom in this great state. I want to say to you, thank you. So everyone in that environmental protection unit at the attorney general's office and, and Paige and the other attorneys that are working on this case, they want to know, how is Pruitt going to handle this case? And so Paige actually really early on gets a chance to ask him what he's going to do with this case. I'll never forget this to this day. I'll never forget this. So he just won attorney general. And there's a nice little delicatessen called the Dilly Deli downtown. You probably ate there yourself. It's great. It's great. And after church, a lot of people go there. And so he's there. And I knew his wife and I knew his kids. And I said, hi, Scott. He says, Dave, hello. And shook, we shook hands. And I said, you know, can't wait to talk to you about this poultry case we have. And I, I said, you know, it's going to be it's an important case for the people of Oklahoma. And we've tried it. And we have a great case. And we need to get together and talk about it. And he said, well, you know, Dave, I don't believe in using lawsuits to change public policy. And I said, what? And you know, we're standing in line, you know, get in the dilly dilly. So he was saying he didn't really believe, I guess, he was sending a message that he didn't believe in the poultry case. But I guess I learned that he does believe in lawsuits for changing public policy if it's a policy that he subscribes to. Within a few years, that's exactly what Scott Pruitt is known for, using lawsuits to force the federal government into a courtroom to affect change to regulation and, and public policy. Is Dodd-Frank unconstitutional? Oklahoma Attorney General Scott Pruitt has joined a lawsuit challenging... Oklahoma Attorney General Scott Pruitt is leading the charge of one of them against Obamacare. Oklahoma Attorney General Scott Pruitt also promises a lawsuit. Pruitt says the requirement to provide contraception conflicts with the most basic elements of freedom provided to all Americans to practice their lawful religion. Nothing has happened in the case. The trial ended in February of 2010, and the case has not been decided. The what? judge has simply not made a decision in that case. How is that possible? Well, I actually talked to the judge. I, I called him and asked him uh, what the delay was. And he said it's a really complicated case, and he's got stacks of paperwork up that just push up against the walls in his office. He actually invited me to come look at him. And he said, a decision is coming. But still, it's been eight years, right? I mean, is there anything else that could have been done to push this case forward? Well, it's clear to Paige and a lot of other people that worked on the case on behalf of the state of Oklahoma that Scott Pruitt did not do enough to push the case along. So the thinking is that had it been a different attorney general, there could have been movement on the case. Right. Attorneys have described a bunch of different ways that if you're interested in getting a decision on this case, that there's a lot of you know, tools you can use to, to prod this thing along. And, and we asked former A.G. Edmondson you know, what he would do ha had he still been in the office and, and this was still ongoing. And he, he said, yeah, he'd be prodding this thing along every opportunity he got. Well, I would have thought of something, something creative 
a uh, motion to wake up or you know something of that nature but I wasn't the Attorney General after January 2011. Of course, Scott Pruitt was the Attorney General. He later said that the chicken case wasn't really his case and that he, quote, inherited it. Not only did Pruitt not push the judge on this case, but he also dismantled the Environmental Protection Unit at the Oklahoma Attorney General's office. And instead, he created a federalism unit to fight what he called federal government overreach. And this isn't super uncommon. You're a Republican, your predecessor was a Democrat. You're going to change things up. So the chicken case at this point is basically stalled. And then there was this deal in place about the wastewater from Arkansas. Remember, this agreement between Arkansas and Oklahoma for Arkansas to meet a standard for how much phosphorus it puts into the waterways. And Arkansas was supposed to hit that standard by 2012. Right, they had this 10-year agreement. Arkansas was going to hit these water quality standards. Mm -hmm. It was in writing, signed by both states. And Arkansas approaches Oklahoma and says, hey, could we essentially get a little more time on this? And Scott Pruitt, rather than saying, no, we have it in writing, we're going to make sure you adhere to what you already agreed to 10 years ago, he says, let's talk about it. And they agree to an extension where they're going to study it and eventually decide whether the original standard was too stringent or too lax even, they say, could be a possibility. But that they're essentially giving Arkansas three more years without having to adhere to the new standard. And to environmentalists, it's like, we already fought this fight. Why are we opening this fight again? We won. Kelly Hunter Foster is one of those environmentalists. She used to run the Environmental Protection Unit in the AG's office, the one that Scott Pruitt dismantled. She actually helped negotiate the agreement between Oklahoma and Arkansas. And she says she was baffled by the decision to study it for three more years. So many great people worked together for so many years to just try to protect this one unique special watershed in Oklahoma. And for reasons that I cannot really fathom, the person who was Oklahoma's attorney general undid that. And and then tells the public that he did it and it's a victory. I don't know, I don't have a word for how that makes me feel. Pruitt was really pressed on this case uh, during his confirmation hearings to be EPA administrator. Mm -hmm. And let me play you actually some of the tape. Uh, Senator Booker. Um, thank you very much. Thank you, Mr. Pruitt. Um, I just want to jump in to one of the... That's Cory Booker. He's a Democratic senator from New Jersey. And he says in this hearing that he actually read Pruitt's deal with Arkansas. And he says it doesn't match the way Pruitt has been describing it. And it was stunning to see that it actually didn't take any steps to reduce pollution, but actually only proposes another unnecessary study and attempts to suspend compliance for yet another three years of pollution. 
isn't that true that that's what it, the agreement it, did? It isn't, Senator. Uh, there was actually no enforcement. Pruitt basically says, well, yes, there was an agreement in place. There was no way to enforce it on the Arkansas side. Oklahoma had it, as you've indicated, as a standard, but it was not being enforced upstream in Arkansas, and, and that's what the agreement addressed. Mr. Pruitt, so but his critics say this agreement was in writing, and he's the attorney general. So it's his job to find a way to enforce it, not to put this agreement on hold, essentially. So Cory Booker does not let this go. You're going to hear him talk about the EPA a little here. The EPA was also considering imposing water standards in Oklahoma and Arkansas. But in the end, it didn't do that. And Booker is suggesting that Pruitt actually made this deal to try and stall the EPA and to help the chicken industry. You basically turn to the EPA with the power of the law of the Supreme Court and say, okay, back off of my corporations. And so that's really what I'm struggling with. On one hand, you say that you file lawsuits against the EPA. It's this idea of federalism. You're fiercely fighting for Oklahoma. But then on the other hand, in this case that you're talking about, suddenly you're no longer fighting for Oklahoma you're fighting to protect industry on, on the side of industry again. The phosphorus level was unenforceable on the Arkansas side of the border, and that's where the contribution was, con- that was the concern. And until this agreement that we have here was negotiated and signed by Arkansas, that, that had never occurred in the history of Oklahoma. Pruitt does have defenders on this, including people who've worked on the river for decades. They say it was good for Arkansas and Oklahoma to be negotiating. That's a lot better and a lot cheaper than endless lawsuits. And then this other surprising thing happens. Around the time of this deal, the water quality in the Illinois River and the lakes in the area is getting better. And the poultry companies say, look, they've worked voluntarily to remove a million tons of this chicken waste from the watershed. So, jump to 2016, and Scott Pruitt supports Jeb Bush for president and criticizes Donald Trump. I believe that Donald Trump in the White House would be more abusive of the Constitution than Barack Obama, and that's saying a lot. Uh, Donald Trump has said many, many times, day one, I'll do this, I'll do that, and, 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 and those things that he's mentioned cannot be done. No. Uh, I think executive orders with a Donald Trump would be a very blunt instrument with respect to the Constitution. See, you're, th- this is amazing because... But then Trump gets elected. Scott Pruitt becomes a Trump supporter. And Trump nominates the guy who sued the EPA 14 times to head the EPA. So now we get to Scott Pruitt and the EPA. How's he been doing? Well, Pruitt has a lot of cheerleaders. Supporters like that Pruitt is very public. Here's the president's message. The war on coal is over. Pruitt said it's full speed ahead to undo key Obama administration regulations. He's very public about taking on what they wanted him to take on, this massive rollback of Obama-era environmental rules. He wants to rein in all the power grab that we've seen from the EPA. President Obama's clean power plan. Great for jobs, great for the economy, great for business. But there are all these reports, right, about, you know, 
his aides from Oklahoma getting raises at the EPA. We have Scott Pruitt embroiled in yet another massive scandal related uh, uh, to the $50 night condo, the first class travel, the security, the stuff in his office. The list is very, very long. The line that you hear from Pruitt's defenders is that he's coming under all this additional scrutiny because he's so effective. Yeah, look, Scott Pruitt is taking on the sacred cows of the extreme progressive left. They essentially dismiss most of the criticism as partisan. Scott Pruitt is fighting back. He's telling me the left is attacking him for carrying out President Trump's agenda. And Saturday night, the president tweeted this, Scott is doing a great job. But keep in mind that there are currently multiple inspector general investigations into Pruitt's behavior while in office, and even the Republican House Oversight Committee is looking into various aspects of Pruitt's handling of his job at the EPA. And what about the talk that Scott Pruitt might have ambitions beyond the EPA? What is what you just told us about him? tell us about what his next steps might be. Right. So it's been widely reported that he has ambitions well beyond the EPA and specifically has been interested in the U.S. Attorney General's job, which has been held by Jeff Sessions. But President Trump himself has been speculating in public about firing his own attorney general. And from Pruitt's record, you can get a sense of what his priorities might be in that office, whether on pushing for a religious freedom agenda. And it also raises questions on how he might handle issues involving transgender rights or other things that an attorney general of the United States might have to encounter. And I just have one more question, and that is, you know, what has happened with the water quality? The last we left off, it was 2012. The water quality was actually getting a little bit better. It sounds like the chicken companies were doing different things with the chicken waste. How's the water quality in Oklahoma, in eastern Oklahoma? Well, environmentalists are starting to get worried. Uh, the water quality has improved over the years, but they say there's nothing in place to keep it that way. And they're really worried because new data from the state suggests that the amount of chicken waste that's being disposed of on the land throughout the watershed is actually increasing. In the last three years, it's actually doubled. All right. Actually, that wasn't my last question. This is my last question. What happened to that agreement between the state of Oklahoma and Arkansas, right? They had this 10-year thing, then there was three years to study it. Um, This agreement that, you know, Cory Booker was asking Scott Pruitt about. The outcome of that agreement is still unresolved. Oklahoma and Arkansas are still working it out. So nothing has happened. There was this there was going to be a standard imposed, but now there's no standard. No standard. And whose job is it to resolve it or to decide? It comes down to the EPA.
This episode was reported by Joe Wirtz of State Impact Oklahoma and Tom Dreisbach. It was produced by Tom, edited by me, Neil Carruth, and Jennifer Ludden, with help from Sarah McCammon, Chris Benderev, and Mark Memmott. Fact-checking by Greta Pittenger, with help from Noor Wazwaz. We had research help from Barkley Walsh and Candace Courtcamp. Our lawyer is Ashley Messenger. Special thanks to Laura Kadra, Jennifer Wiedis, Dennis Delatant, and Rachel Hubbard at KOSU. Our theme song is by Colin Wamsgans. Other original music by Ramtin Arablui. The audio you heard from the Supreme Court came from Oye. Embedded is executive produced by Anya Grunderman, Chris Turpin, and me. You can hear more NPR on your local station. We are back next week with the start of our series from Coal Country. These are the best people in the world right here. I'm totally convinced about that. The people have never left the year 1980. Everybody's still living like nothing's changed. And I love it. See, that's the problem with the coal miners here. You got paid a lot of money for doing a manual labor job, and now that that's going to go away, and you've overextended yourselves financially. First of all, drag your ice into one of these coal mines that's 36 inches high and crawl around on your hands and knees for 10 hours a day, and then tell me you don't deserve what you get. Subscribe to this podcast if you haven't already. Leave us a review. Hit us up on Twitter at NPR Embedded. Thanks.